to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 8 of 2, recorded the week of Monday, February 15th, 2016. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Cassie Tamanini, a.k.a. Craftless. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Also joining us tonight, Cat Robinson. Welcome as well, Cat. Always a pleasure to be here. Yes, Mark is continuing his first robotics escapades, and Gene is a bit under the weather tonight, so we're sending him healing wishes and Mark and his team the best of luck in their competitions. So in the meantime, we are going to jump right into all the space news that have happened in the last few weeks, because, boy, there is quite a lot. But to be perfectly honest, before we do that, we do need to address something that came up on Twitter this past week. We had some people mention after our last episode that we did not include all of the people who should be honored on NASA's Day of Remembrance. And a big thank you to the following people on Twitter who called this out, to Ben Honey, a.k.a. SpaceGuy87 on Twitter, uh, as well as Chris, who goes by RobotBeat on Twitter. Thank you to both of you guys for mentioning that, and that is a very valid point that we do need to bring up, is that yes, we mainly focus on Columbia and Challenger and Apollo 1 during the Day of Remembrance, because that's what we tend to remember most. But it's not just about those three darkest days in NASA's history. There are still so many more people who have lost their lives dedicating themselves to the continued exploration of space. People who worked on the ground, people who have had... Things happen in manufacturing facilities across the country, at launch pads. People, astronauts who didn't make it into space because of some tragic accident, a plane crash, such as some of the crew of Gemini 9 uh, going way back as well, that crew. There are so many dedicated people that have lost their lives in the pursuit of space exploration, and we tend to neglect some of those as we did in the last episode. And I would like to take this time to apologize and to recognize all of the people and thank all of them for their service. And thank you as well for calling us out on that on Twitter. And we, we're not joking when we say, Oh, we'll get letters about that. We genuinely want you to call us out. If there is something that we said wrong or that you think deserves another opinion. And if that is the case, you can always call us out on Twitter. Like they did at talking space, We also have our Facebook page, we have our Google Plus page, and then we have our email, which is mailbag at TalkingSpaceOnline.com. So we genuinely do read your comments, and we appreciate all of them. So thank you guys for pointing that out. Now let's hop into the space news that we've got to cover so far. So we're actually going to start with everybody's favorite thing, Congress. Yeah, yeah, I know, that's not really the case. (laughs) But we are going to talk a little bit about... Congress, which has brought up a few things relating to NASA. And the first one we'll talk about is this panel that they've had discussing exploration of Mars and NASA's future in that, except for the fact that there was nobody actually there representing NASA, correct? Yes, that's correct. Earlier this month, the House Committee on Science, Space, and Technology met looking over NASA's journey to Mars and had a panel of three outside experts, none of whom were there in any sort of official capacity with NASA, though one is on NASA's advisory council. And they were looking over the agency's plans to get to Mars and whether or not they saw those plans as feasible, well thought out, fundable. And despite showing its approval in one of the only ways it knows how, as we mentioned on the last show, and actually giving NASA a fully funded budget, they then immediately walked back a little bit of that approval by really laying into NASA for its lack of a specific and detailed plan to get us to Mars. 
which is a really important thing. One of the concerns that was expressed during this committee meeting by both the legislators and the outside experts who were there was they don't want to see NASA's journey to Mars go the way of Constellation. And so they're very concerned that NASA has in place uh, a detailed plan that includes dates, roadmarks, places, achievements, missions, that actually looks at having the launch infrastructure because Orion and SLS alone are not enough to get us to Mars. The infrastructure when it comes to having a spaceship, we need a module for living, so a habitation module. We need not only the landing system to get us to Mars, but also the return propulsion system. How do we get a crew off of Mars? All of these are items that have not yet been developed and are not yet addressed in NASA's current Journey to Mars. Longtime listeners may remember we discussed this last year when NASA released its Journey to Mars PDF report, and a lot of people commented how There was a lot of big ideas and a lot of big, broad goals, but not a lot of specifics. And this committee was really starting to drill down and and say that in order for Journey to Mars to be a viable mission for NASA to be this generation's moonshot, that we have to start seeing specifics and we have to start seeing how we're actually going to get there, if we can even get there by 2033, which is the current goal. Probably also mention that this committee uh, really called into question the asteroid retrieval mission. And yes. they, <laughs> very specifically, and they were talking about alternatives that have come up from all over the space community, including we've talked about Jan Werner's plan from ESA, you know, the moon colony. And they were also talking about the Humans Orbiting Mars workshop which they thought had a compelling path to Mars compared to the president's plan. So it's kind of interesting that they want a plan in place, but they also seem to be worried that the current things that are being talked about are maybe not the best path. So it seems interesting that they would want this strict of a plan to be laid out before this administration's over if they're also questioning the plan that the administration has been talking well, about. This is Congress. They can, <laughs> they can want two different things and expect them both to be done, even though they directly contradict with one another. <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, but, you, know, you bring up a great point, Cassie. They really are kind of looking hard at, at the asteroid redirect mission, kind of saying this is a mission without a mission. There was even floated by the idea during this meeting that Elon Musk has more of a chance of getting to Mars before NASA, which I think would be somewhat damaging to NASA if you if we think of NASA as the forefront of human exploration and their goal and, and their directive is to benefit all humankind. This sort of exploration is the kind of thing that NASA argues for being like, this is what we're supposed to be doing. This is why we're handing over low earth orbit to commercial space is, is to do these, these big things. But, but how do we fund those and how do we plan for those? Because the committee argues that NASA can't both pay for the space station through 2024 and do this mission to Mars. And then as you brought up, Cassie, what comes next? There's people, a lot of people, we've talked about this on the show multiple times, who are really arguing that we need to go back to the moon as a a stepping point to Mars. Mm -hmm. But then you get, you know, people within Congress saying, well, we've already, we've been there, we've been that, done that. NASA's already been to the moon, so we don't need to do that again. So it's kind of Which is also exactly what this administration said. Exactly. But it's, again, you know, you have to balance those, those priorities. If we are going to cast that big vision that, Mars is where it is. We haven't yet had, you know, a Kennedy moment. We haven't had yet a politician get up and say, we're going to do this unequivocally. We must do this because it's- We, the- go, to, we go to Mars, not because it is easy, right? Exactly. We need that. Exactly. <laughs> and I mean, I've seen talks of, you know, Russia and ESA partnering up to do moon stuff. And, you know, ESA has looked into in the- past actually doing a moon mission and Mm -hmm. i've said this in the past before and i will say it still to this day i think sometimes we need that competition just to you know give us a little kick in the hiney to get going again (laughs) especially to give congress a little bit of a kick in the hiney to move on things (laughs) i've said the best thing that could happen to our space program would be china to land on the moon yep (laughs) so I, i think there's some realization 
And again, for me, what really stuck out in this committee meeting is this idea and this recognition that if there isn't a plan in place that has mileposts that, that need to be met and goals to be met, a mission for Orion past EM2, if those goals aren't met, then there is, I think, a very realistic fear that what happens to Orion in the next administration, if the next president doesn't want to continue that, does Orion does the journey of Mars go the way of constellation? And that's a very real fear for the program. And I think it's one that has to be addressed. And I, I think yeah. that's part of what this committee was trying to do was to address this. Yeah, you you have to learn from all history, including recent history. Exactly. That, that's actually a good way to put it. But, I mean, as we saw, we talked about this last time, the budget, it, it looks pretty good for Constellation. They got, you know, they asked for one3 million and or 1.3 billion and got two so i mean there's they have faith in it it seems like and they certainly trust it at least this administration but again we are coming up on a major presidential election year here in the united states and that will play a huge role in it as well as all future congressional elections so to anybody who lives in the united states your vote does matter especially when it comes to space stuff Yes. And don't and don't forget to look up how candidates feel about space. Like the Planetary Society, for example, has uh, an election guide which has quotes from each of the candidates who have ever talked yeah. about space. And there are some disturbing Make sure to pay attention to that. <laughs> yeah, stuff. because if you are if you are a person who cares about the space program and, and you're a space advocate, some of the people running have voted against NASA, have said things that are disparaging to NASA and science funding in general. So, you know, be cognizant that that your vote counts for more than just a president. And don't be surprised if it turns out your favorite candidate is not one that supports space or surprisingly is, even though it might go against other ideologies. Make sure to look up what they think about space specifically. Because sometimes it's a little bit surprising. Sometimes it doesn't necessarily line up with the rest of their ideology. So just make sure to check those things out and, you know, Google what they've said in the past, because some of them have actually voted on budgets and various things to do with space policy. And encourage your friends to vote. I know we always on the show encourage you to write your your elected representatives, no matter where they be, whether in the United States or, or other countries, um, about the things you care about, especially if you care about space. But if you're in America, this is an election year, get out and vote and encourage your friends to get out and vote. Right. Some have ideologies, some have ideologies. So <laughs> <laughs> it really depends. And it's good to do your research. Yeah, well, I know we have uh, listeners from across the political spectrum. So it, it's just extra important if you care about space to make sure that you at least go in knowing if you're voting for somebody who will be willing to support it going forward. So several of these candidates have talked like they're going to maybe restrict NASA as much as they can and starve it, you know. So it's pretty key because as you can see with the way the budget works, <laughs> it's very, very important to have a president in particular that supports space as well as, of course, your federal representatives, your senators and your congressperson. They, they are the people who actually set this stuff. So pay close, close attention as this election season rolls along forever and ever. Exactly. <laughs> and here on Talking Space, we endorse space. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> now, yes. you mentioned president and budget. How convenient for a transition here into our next congressional type story, which is that the White House has put out their 2017 fiscal year proposed budget for NASA. Again, this is not approved, but this is the submitted budget for NASA that the president has submitted to Congress. And the numbers have gone up. The total that they are asking for this year is 19 billion, with a B, dollars. Again, that's still less than half of 1% of the overall U.S. budget, but hey, we'll take what we can get. Every little increase helps. And we talked about SLS, how the last budget they were given, he proposed $1.3 billion, and Congress actually upped it to $2 billion. Uh, well, this time he has proposed $1.31 billion, so throwing a little extra money in there. 
that is for SLS and that whole program as well, whether it has a destination yet or not, it's getting its money. <laughs> Interesting note when you mentioned the percentage of the budget that NASA gets, which is half a percent, essentially a little bit less. But one of the points that was made in the House Committee and Science, Space and Technology is that if NASA had a full percent of the budget, that it could meet all of its goals that it currently has stated. I do not doubt that in the least. And of course, the other big problem with NASA's budget, though, is, and this goes back to what we were saying about taking a look at your favorite candidates and their positions, is the whole, why are we studying the Earth, climate change, yada, yada, all of that whole deal. Earth science last year got a budget of $1.92 billion, which is $20 million less than they requested, but hey, it's talking about money there. Now, he is proposing $2.03 billion, so up for Earth science. And again, it's a matter of whether that'll get passed as is or not, and that comes down to Congress approving or making changes to it. But again, they're asking for more money for Earth science, which is a great thing. And of course, planetary science is also getting some love too. So a lot of good stuff in this budget. The question is whether or not it will actually pass. And that usually is always the question. So basically for the science budget, they're talking about $5.6 billion total for science, which is great. And then of course, you know, we talked about SLS and that whole program is getting a whole bunch of money. And the big thing is with this being the 2017 budget, we are rapidly approaching the first test launches of the new rocket and the capsule on EM-1 and EM-2, which will actually go out to the moon and beyond. So we've got some big milestones coming up, and I think the budget is going to play a huge role in those EM-1 and 2 missions. Absolutely. It really is. And now they're already starting to set the details on EM-1. They just announced the launch director for that first launch, and it's not just the first launch of SLS, but it will be featuring the very first female launch director at Kennedy Space Center, Charlie Blackwell Thompson, who has been working in launch systems for a long time. She has some patents. She's been working in launch control for a long time, and she's really proven her worth. She's a veteran member. She worked for many years with the space shuttle. So they're refurbishing firing room one, and she's going to be at the helm for this incredibly historic launch. So exciting. A whole bunch of history being made. Admittedly, it's a shame it's taken this long, but hey, every step forward is great. So It's absolutely, I mean, it's incredible. I was actually surprised when I saw that she would be the first woman to, I just hadn't thought about it. It didn't occur to me there hadn't been a woman, but then when you look at the list, there you go. And actually, she has a wonderful quote in the NASA story about her getting this post. She said, a couple of firsts here all make me smile. First launch director for the world's most powerful rocket, that's humbling. And I am honored to be the first female launch director at Kennedy Space Center. So many amazing women that have contributed to human spaceflight, and they blazed the trail for all of us. I feel extremely blessed. I also know that being the launch director comes with a whole lot of responsibility. I have a healthy respect for just how important this job is. So now she's got three years of working with her crew and training and doing simulations and getting ready to launch this giant, giant rocket. <laughs> oh, yeah. That is a great quote, actually. But it, Isn't it? So really historical. Is. And it, there's right. There's When you think of what goes on in that firing room, there is just so much history dating back to the old days through all of the shuttle program and now onward. And it's just continuing to add to the history. And again, it's about darn time. It sure is, and I cannot wait to pass around the peanuts for that launch. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, well, one launch that we won't be passing some peanuts around for just yet is the next Cygnus launch to the International Space Station. That was scheduled to launch on an Atlas V on March 10th. However, that will not happen because of mold. Yeah, that's right. The stuff that's in my fridge because I forgot to throw out food from a month ago, a tiny bit of that delayed a whole launch to the International Space Station. And yes, <laughs> we'll ignore that? the fact that that is actually true. 
<laughs> Cassie had a great comment on this and she told me about it because she knew I was keeping an eye on this launch to see whether or not I could make it down. And she was like, all of the launches, all the missions that take place in nice, beautiful, humid Florida. And this is the How <laughs> is this the first? <laughs> <laughs> That's actually amazing. I, if you actually, if you stop and think about it, Florida is full of mold, and black mold is all like in the walls of Floridians' houses. I I've spent a lot of time in Florida. You see a lot of news about people's houses full of black mold down there, and <laughs> I can't believe it actually took this long. It is a tribute to everybody who works in packaging all the supplies and food and everything that goes into these and deals with them at Kennedy Space Center, the people who deal with all the logistics of all this stuff, who pack the bags. It is such a tribute to them that this is the first time this has happened. Exactly, and it wasn't even a massive like mold spreader. There was just tiny little bits of it on just a few of the bags because they had already half packed up the Cygnus full of supplies. But when they discovered yeah. that in two fabric bags used for packaging clothing, food, other supplies, <laughs> that's when they said, okay, we're going to play it safe, take everything out, re-disinfect everything, and then pack it back up, and we will push the launch date to March 22nd, which is the next current launch. And this was a routine test. There was no extreme danger to the International Space Station if the mold did go up there. Because, again, we're talking tiny bits. But then again, from what I've heard, the ISS smells so bad already, it doesn't need more mold. <laughs> Think about it. They don't shower up there. They're reusing clothes. Yeah. But <laughs> that's another story. Very true. Well, speaking of it smelling pretty bad aboard the International Space Station, we are going to continue expanding outward with our stories from now on. We're going to start here on Earth, and we're going to launch and keep on going out. So the next one does take us to the International Space Station and Scott Kelly, who is almost done now with his year in space. His year-long mission, or just about year-long mission, will end on March 1st with his return back to Earth, completing the first part of a very long experiment, considering that he will have to be examined once he gets back to see what happened to his body, as well as comparing it to his brother, his twin brother, Mark Kelly, who was also an astronaut, here on Earth and seeing what happens to the body, which will be a huge, huge, important step forward in going to Mars is learning what happens to the body on longer duration space flights. You know, we've been talking about the journey to Mars and this experiment is one of those important steps. So yes, Scott Kelly and his compadre, Mikhail Korinenko, both of whom were completing the year in space, have been aboard Expedition 43, 44, 45, and now Expedition 46. So they've been up there for quite a while, and I'm pretty sure they're about ready to come home, and they will be doing so again on March 1st. And we'll bring that up again in our next episode for sure, but wishing them the best of luck on the near conclusion of their mission. Really makes you appreciate how quickly a year goes, doesn't it? Or appreciate how old we are now. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is that too. <laughs> But yes, a lot does happen in a year, and it's amazing if you just look back through Scott Kelly's pictures, just, you know, how much has happened in that short period of time. If you go back through the tweets and see the major events that he had talked about, and elections, and all these other things that went on, it, it's just amazing to realize how long he actually has been up there. Again, all the best of luck to him on his return home, and we will certainly continue covering that. Next up, we are going to head out to the Lagrange 2 point, or L2, which is a little bit past the International Space Station, a few million miles out. And that is where the James Webb Space Telescope will be once it launches. And it is one step closer to that now with a mirror, a full mirror, right? That's correct. Its primary mirror is now fully assembled. Another thing that really makes you realize the passage of time. I mean, it wasn't too long ago that people were talking about whether James Webb would have to be scrapped for budget overruns and everything. And so this sort of brings together everything we've been talking about, because getting this project through to this point has meant clearing a lot of hurdles. But this is huge. We're sort of on that last track of getting this thing assembled, you know, and oh, it's going to be absolutely incredible. Oh, yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, we're talking about a six and a half meter diameter primary mirror. It's about 21.3 feet. 
and it is going to help us see even further than before. And boy, I remember when I was interning at the Goddard Space Flight Center a few years back, seeing them polishing one of those mirrors. They are big mirrors, and that is going to help this thing see <laughs> way into the future. And I am beyond excited for that, which is currently on track for a launch aboard an Ariane 5 rocket in October of 2018. So close. Time travel. Yeah. <laughs> hey, we're in 2016 already. We're getting there. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, I just remember 2018 seeming like forever away, you know. But it's just, it's rapidly approaching. And just each time we see a milestone in building this telescope, it, it's just a reminder of how much further we're go going. Because obviously it's not that it's going so much further, it's that we're going to see so much further. But it's kind of the same thing, you know, when you're talking in terms of watching things in space, it's like time travel, getting to see these things that happened so far away and so long ago. And there's almost a magic to it. It's hard to believe it's a real piece of engineering that's going to be up there soon, because not that long ago, it was sounding pretty science fiction-y. It was. And, you know, that's that's why I brought it up. Time travel, it truly is the closest we can get to time travel now. When we look up, we are looking at the past. And the James Webb Space Telescope is going to help us see further than we've ever been able to before. Yes, James Webb is going to be our real-life TARDIS. <laughs> Even if it can't change dimensions, we are still going to be looking out further. And I mentioned the diameter of the primary mirror. I should mention that that mirror being fully assembled is 18 different primary mirror segments all put together. So it's going to be an extremely powerful telescope and... I think will be a great successor to Hubble and will help us see even further into the future and into the past. And maybe it's even bigger on the inside. Ooh, I like the way you think. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we are going to continue going outward now towards the outer edges of the solar system. We're going to hang out here for a little bit for a few stories. The first one is about Comet 67P with the name I can't pronounce, so we'll just say 67P. And in particular, the Rosetta mission, which basically explored the comet and more importantly, launched the Philae lander to land on the comet, which it successfully did. Now we have one minor problem, though. It got back some great science, but it's not transmitting anything back anymore. And if I'm correct, we believe Philae has gone to sleep for good. Am I right? Yes, you are correct, Sawyer. Uh, Say it so. <laughs> As Issa put it, Philae is facing eternal hibernation. Alas, Philae won't be alone on Comet 67P forever, but they have not heard from Philae since July 9th, 2015. It first landed in 2014 on November 12th. It landed not once, not twice, not even three times as we initially thought, but it actually landed four times on a comet. So I believe that it's the first lander to land four times on the same celestial body. Could be wrong. Feel free to fact check me, listeners. But they had some issues with the landing. Its harpoon didn't stick, and it ended up landing far away, uh, about a kilometer away from its initial landing site, uh, in a place that unfortunately didn't get a lot of sun. It was able to do a lot of science data in the brief time it was able to operate, and then had a series of contact with Rosetta, which is the spacecraft that launched it towards Comet 67P from June to July of 2015. But since then, it's just not been able to contact. Rosetta has been trying to contact it. ESA was sending signals to it in the blind, hoping that maybe some signals to run some operations would wake it up. And unfortunately, it looks like Philae is sleeping forevermore. ESA says that it will still continue to listen, there's just a minuscule possibility that anything would ever be heard again because Rosetta actually, now that the comet has reached perihelion and, and is coming back away from the sun, will begin to get closer to Comet 67P again. And Rosetta itself is actually running out of fuel and will be running out of energy and ability to run its own science directives and missions. So the Rosetta team has set a goal for 
the end of the Rosetta mission, they're actually going to do much like we talked about with Mercury and Messenger last season. They will do a controlled impact on Comet 67P, uh, still looking at landing places, impact places for Rosetta, but they'll do several elliptical orbits to get very close pictures of the surface of Comet 67P, and they will continue to do science up until the very end. So even though... Uh, Philae is sleeping eternally now on Comet 67P. Philae will not be alone. Rosetta will, will join its little lander and its final resting place. And actually, something that's kind of interesting is that where it landed, it didn't get enough sun. But if Philae had landed at the intended zone, it may have, it probably actually would have overheated in March exactly. 2015 anyway. So not getting signal past that point. This isn't in any sense, just to make it clear to people, this isn't in any sense a failed mission because we haven't heard from it in a while. It completed most of its science, not all of it, but most of it. And most importantly, it proved that we can do this, which gives us the opportunity to investigate more comets in the future. Despite the technical difficulties it had with its landing, it was able to complete around 80% of its science objectives which is phenomenal to think that we landed something. ESA landed Philae on a comet that was moving around the solar system after a mission that we didn't even know whether or not Rosetta would wake up in the first place. Right. So, I mean, <laughs> this has just been an amazing example of what humans can do with science in space and definitely a wonderful argument for why we should keep doing things with science in space. Well, yes, because it turns out from what we've learned, comets are actually quite different than we expected, as well as uh, their activity is different than expected. And this is the kind of information that we need to know because comets, there's a lot of them. They're all over the place and we need to understand more about how they move about. Some of the most beautiful words in science. This wasn't what we expected. <laughs> Very true. And it is amazing just to think the accomplishment when you put it in time scale, we're only a little over 100 years since the invention of flight. The 60s is when we first got to exploring the moon. Late 60s, early 70s, we were first getting to explore some of our closest neighbors, Mercury, Venus, and Mars. And now we're landing on comets and asteroids yeah. and all these other extrasolar bodies. It's amazing. <laughs> it's awe-inspiring. It really is. And another major milestone when you think about it timing-wise is that finally last year in 2015, we now have visited, albeit flying by, we have now visited every single planet and or former planet, depending on how you look at it, in our solar system. And talk about we didn't see what we expected. <laughs> oh my gosh, are you kidding me? With Pluto, that no was... Kidding. I mean, every single picture book from when I was a kid, I remember it was this little bluish brownish whatever blurry thing not the amazing that we saw not a beautiful warm world with a heart i know that <laughs> heart especially with valentine's day that just passed no matter what whether you were alone or with somebody just know pluto always loves you and in turn nasa loves studying pluto i mean how could you not especially that amazing heart which they have now done nasa's new horizons mission which flew by pluto they are getting more data back from it every single day, even though the flyby has long passed. And they are now finally getting to look in in-depth detail at what is actually going on inside that heart and some of the geological features of the heart, right? That's correct. They just recently released a new map of the heart area that allows people who are researching this to look at the geology of Pluto. And so Pluto's and NASA's Valentine to you was a map to its heart. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> Which the map, by the way, covers about a 1,300 mile or about 2,100 kilometer or so area of the heart. And in it, it takes a look at some of the amazing features of it, such as impact craters inside the heart, as well as other geological features, different types of Nitrogen terrain. ice. Yep. Ice, different types of terrain, even a plane that was considered featureless, 
bright cellular planes. Well, and that's the thing is actually the featurelessness there is actually more interesting than the impact craters because we know that that it is producing new ground because obviously it's been impacted a lot. And so looking at this map and you see this giant area with if you pull up the map and we'll have a link in the show notes, there's these yellow spots that denote impact craters. And you just see them going completely around this area in the heart, these cellular planes. And it's absolutely incredible because you know all of that has to be very, very new land. I mean, it's a violent place out there. I am so excited because on Pluto, there is a right month, which might be an ice volcano. I mean, how cool is that? That is amazing. A volcano that shoots ice instead of lava. And the other cool thing is they have these black lines that are on the map. Those are troughs, which are basically cells of nitrogen ice on the surface. It's unbelievable. I mean, it's just not geology that anybody would have ever expected. No, not at all. And that's, again, that's like you were saying, those are some of the best words in science. This is not what we expected. That and, ooh, we have more questions now. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we've, we've answered quite a few, but all this data coming back, like you said, there's going to be years of information coming out because this is just the beginning of studying it. Exactly. And you it know? really, Pluto has shifted the way we think about geology on celestial bodies. Although, Pluto, you're always a planet in my heart. Oh. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we have data dumps that are going to be coming back for the next year or so, let alone all the studying from it. So there are probably so many things that we have conceptualized about Pluto, even now, even after getting some of these pictures back, that will prove to be wrong or changed. And that's the beauty of science, is that you can have, you know, think you have a perfect understanding of a celestial body and then it completely changes. Or the complete opposite, you think you have an understanding of the universe and it turns out you may actually kind of be right. So brace yourselves, because this next story is going to be making waves. This next story has us converting this file from an MP3 to a wave file. <laughs> yes, the impact of this will be rippling through the universe, just like these amazing gravitational waves. <laughs> yes, yes, this story definitely is making waves because, you know, it also interesting, we've been talking about the passage of time, but it was almost exactly 100 years ago when Einstein predicted in his theory of general relativity these gravitational waves and that gravity travels in waves at all. And this is something that there's been no way to prove <laughs> for a very long time. And so, Quite recently, and there have been other theories that have pointed towards these, obviously building upon Einstein's, but there really was no way to do this. So now in Louisiana and Washington, we have this pair of interferometers specifically to try and detect these. So now they built these two interferometers in Louisiana and Washington, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. And it was founded in 1992 and then built and operations began back in 2002. And they were very unsuccessful for a long time. And so in 2010, they shut it down and they replaced it with what they called the advanced LIGO versions. Two of them were brought in February 2015 to these engineering modes. And then in September, it began its first formal science observations at about four times the sensitivity. Well, it turns out four times the sensitivity was the magic number because two days after they turned them on with this advanced LIGO, they found gravitational waves. They were detected from a pair of black holes merging which is part of Hawking's theory of how we get these supermassive black holes that are so much bigger and denser than the mass of the stars that created them originally. They think that, well, Hawking thought and proposed back in 1970 that you would have to have pairs of black holes merging in order to get these giant sizes. And so 
it turns out that, well, basically, it just was released last week that Einstein and Hawking were correct. We get these waves, which are actually about the same size as waves that we can hear. So you can actually literally hear the universe at human hearing levels, (laughs) which is pretty incredible. But you need advanced equipment to actually detect that. My my first thought that morning when I was waking up is that it was a profoundly beautiful thing to wake up to the phrase, we can hear the universe. Indeed. I must say I'm a little biased as a sound person. <laughs> but, you know, we we listen to the universe in many ways. And this is a new way to listen to it. We're hearing a whole new song, essentially. It really is. I mean, we've heard different parts of space before as we go by planets and other things out there. But this is just an amazing discovery. Admittedly, I'm still trying to understand half of it because it is a very complex concept. But I mean, this helps prove some of Einstein's theory of relativity, which I mean, that helps us understand the universe in so many ways. And it's just amazing. I mean, the effects of this will be rippling through society for a while. Yes, and it's another one of those things where it took so long to go from theory to even having a shot at doing any sort of experiment to prove it. So it's amazing when you look at time and you look at these things that we've been proving over the past couple of years, you know, like finding the Higgs boson. These theories, it's a lot of people forget what a theory really means, and it makes you realize the import of these theories and how strong they really are. Because... They were predicted so long before there was even a thought of a way to work at proving them. It took a hundred years in this case. Exactly. But the most important thing is we kept asking those questions like we were talking about, and we were able to find the answer to that. And I mean, that's huge. And that is science right there in all of its glory. My favorite thing about this, which to me is just the beautiful humor of the universe, is that one of these things that has proved something Einstein theorized about was proven by something he didn't believe in because he didn't believe black holes existed. Yeah, there's something really poetic about that, isn't there? Hey, and you know me, I'm a poet, so <laughs> I, I love just the, the poetry of that, that the universe doesn't require our belief to prove its existence. Yep, it really doesn't care at all what we think or believe. (laughs) It just is what it is. (laughs) And that's really quite beautiful when you think about it. And, you know, black holes are a subject I've been trying to learn about for a long time. And, of course, it's I am not a physicist. I do not have the educational background for it. Uh, I've read a lot of Hawking. But so for me... I feel like finding this binary pair, which I should also mention, were about 29 and 36 times the mass of the sun. So they're massive. Each of them. And when they came together, they became 61 times the mass of the sun. (laughs) So (laughs) we're talking seriously giant things from 1.3 billion light years away. So 1.3 billion years ago, these two large black holes merge together and we caught the moment in 2015 pretty spectacular and and just an amazing synchronicity to the universe i have this friend and and i'll have to see if we can get permission to stick this in the show notes he's a comic artist and he did a comic for for ligo and he said in a moment and a billion years we will fill this on earth using lasers mirrors and some pipes and it's really just kind of profound to think that we hear And we see and we observe all these moments in the past. And then we use those moments to understand something about the universe as we know it now, which is a very amazing and and profound thing to do as humans. We've talked about science in this episode, and we've talked about a, a lot of things like this, but these are important things. Carl Sagan said the universe it's a way to know ourselves. Looking up at the universe is a way that we know ourselves. And, and this is a way that we continue to know who we are. Oftentimes people question, you know, why are we doing this? Why is this important? We just talked for, for some time about Congress and NASA's budget. And 
these aren't just scientific questions. These are questions about who we are. And so I think for that reason, on top of the science, it's really important that we continue to do and to search out the answers to the questions that science prompts us to ask. Absolutely. And what's also interesting is there's already several other interferometer pairs being built and getting ready to come online all over the world. The one that springs to mind is in Italy called Virgo. I can't remember the names of the other ones right now, but there's going to be more of those. And so this is going to become actually like gravitational astronomy is going to be a thing. And not only that, but the European Space Agency is planning to launch a large scale gravitational wave observatory in 2034. They haven't finalized the designs yet. And obviously that's a bit of a way off, but hey, that's how far off James Webb was not too long ago. And they're actually starting it with the LISA Pathfinder which won't hunt for gravitational waves, but it'll be working out the kinks for actually having interferometers in space detecting these gravitational waves. So when you put them all together, you have the current LIGO and you have these different projects around the planet and one in space. When you put them all together, we can actually get an incredible picture of the universe all around us. And so this is the beginning of an, a whole field of astronomy. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, Cassie, but I, I believe that the, the LIGO pair that detected this, they're not actually at their peak sensitivity yet. They're going to be getting more sensitive. I believe you're correct. I did so much reading about this, I don't want to say for sure <laughs> and get confused and be wrong. But So listeners, uh, write in and let us know, especially if you're an astrophysicist <laughs> or a theoretical physicist. Or um, a minted <laughs> gravitational wave. Theorist? Yeah, because we're all still trying to uh, brush up on this. It's been, it's been such huge news and trying to learn all about the theories of black holes and gravitational waves in a week is a large challenge. But the excitement is there and I'm going to continue studying this particular subject because I think we're going to be getting a lot more interesting news out of this. And I'm really looking forward to these other facilities coming online and the thing is, they have to work in pairs. If you detect a wave at one and you don't detect it on the other, it means you did not really find gravitational waves. So they're all in these giant pairs. They're going to be all over the planet. They're going to be in space. And we're going to keep asking these questions and keep working on these theories. And this is a huge, huge, huge step in the right direction. And it also proves that there's a point to doing all these other things. It's like proof of concept, you know? Exactly. And obviously we still have a lot to learn, but hey, this is the beginning of something amazing that we have here now. And again, it confirms some of the way that we look at the universe and it's no longer just, oh, maybe this is the case, but now we are getting into the realm of confirmation of some pretty big science. So... I mean, at this point, I still don't think we understand the gravity of this discovery. No, no. <laughs> uh, no, we don't. <laughs> well, I'm sorry you guys aren't attracted to my jokes. <laughs> oh. But anyway, we will continue to look at this. And it is just amazing, though, that finally humans have been looking up into space and waving at the universe. And finally, the universe has decided to wave back. You know, this is a strange little, probably a little off topic, but as a singer for my friend's daughter, I learned all of the lyrics to Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. And of course, we all know how I wonder what you are is a major feature of that song. And every time I've played it, I all I can think is, well, we totally know what stars are now. And now we're working on the behavior of black holes. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's a hundred, hundred and 20, I think, year old folk song. And look at, again, the, we're stuck on time this episode, it seems. <laughs> but look at the differences in that time and how much we understand. Just how much we've revealed in the past year of things that are were not what we expected. Or, you know, in this case was something we really hoped for, didn't know if we should expect it or not, obviously expected on a certain level or it wouldn't have been worth spending millions of dollars to create facilities to detect it. But 
with each of these advances, and they're coming in such rapid succession now, we are finding these new questions to ask, and we are finding our future missions and our future responsibilities to the sum of human knowledge. I'm kind of amazed at how it seems like it's exponential, how quickly these things are being found these days. It really does. Exactly. So congratulations to the whole team out there working on this project. And again, this is a huge discovery. Can't think of one more pun to end it. So we will just bring it back <laughs> to Earth and uh, we will get ready to wrap up this episode here at Talking Space. So I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here. Thank you for joining us, Cass Tamanini, a.k.a. Craftless. Well, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. And I'd also like to wish you a very happy birthday, Sawyer. Hopefully this episode will be out by the day itself. Who, me? It's not my birthday on February 18th or anything. <laughs> so subtle, huh? Well, thank you very much, Cassie. And thank you as well for joining us, Kat Robinson. Oh, it's always my pleasure. And also, one last plug. I just saw this today. I know the rest of the world saw it probably when it came out, but I'm old, so things go by me. If you have not seen the OK Go video, I don't remember the name of the song, but they shot it on a zero-G flight, and it is amazing, and you should see it. And I think that the Planetary Society helped support them make it, because that's where I first saw it. If you need something interesting and fun to do after you listen to the show, watch that video. It's really cool. Yes, the song is called Upside Down, Inside Out, Zero Gravity. So, <laughs> yes, and it was done on one zero-G flight, very few, they say it's one take, but they explain how they did it with all the parabolas and everything. And if you get to read an article on how they did it, too, it's phenomenal. And it's a great video and catchy song, too. So, Yeah, so check it out. That's my, that's my last plug of the day. Or the evening, as it were. Oh, we'll, we'll get that in just a second. But thank you as well for joining us on this episode of Talking Space. We hope to have you back again for next episode, which we've got something special planned. Until then, as always... Have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, wherever you are.